It might seem like from the outside, I just send everything that I try and it's always success, success, success or whatever. But the reality is that there's a lot of things that I've failed at even after continued attempts. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to The Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Check your knots, y'all, because we have got a big one for you today as we chalk up for a chat with Jonathan Segrist. How accomplished is this guy? Well, he's climbed six 515s just this year. What? That tick list includes Event Horizon, a route that he bolted that's at least 15B and very well maybe harder. It's certainly one of, if not the hardest routes in North America. And then earlier this year, he had an unbelievably impressive trip to Spain where he sent three 15As, two 14Ds, and a handful of other 514s. Remember, you guys, I'm just talking about the past 12 months here. His accomplishments on rock from 514 on gear to V14 boulders to now countless 514 and 515 sport climbs, this guy is very much at the top of the game and is only getting better. Now, beyond his insanely impressive climbing resume, J-Star has bolted hundreds of routes. This guy is giving back in a huge way, and many of those routes are now uber classics, which thousands of climbers, including myself, have enjoyed pulling onto, and we're going to dig into that during this chat as well. He is as real as it gets, his stoke level is off the charts, and I know you're going to get a ton out of this conversation. It's so good. So when it comes to climbing, there's at least one thing that Jonathan Segrist and I have in common, and that is our love for Fizzy Vantage. You all know Fizzy Vantage is the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle, and you'll hear in today's nutrition chapter that J-Star calls Powerplex by Fizzy Vantage, quote, unquestionably the best vegan protein shake in the market. Now, he uses Powerplex every day to support his training, as do I, and I totally agree with him that it tastes amazing. It dissolves instantly in cold water. There's no chunks or any of that other junk that you get from some of those other powders. It's super easy on the stomach, and it packs the right amount of protein and amino acids to recover faster after a workout and build muscle while you sleep. What more could you ask for? Look, if it's good enough for J-Star, it's good enough for us. Check out PowerPlex and all of the other amazing science-backed products that Fizzy Vantage is offering. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off at FizzyVantage.com. The official gear sponsor here at The Struggle is Petzl. Y'all have been using Petzl gear for a decade now, and I especially love their quick draws, which are among the most clippable and reliable on the market. Each Petzl carabiner is designed and tested to ensure that it can withstand 100,000 open and closed cycles. That is a lot. I've personally been putting that stat to the test this season as I have spent countless goes on this upper crux section of my 12D project at the Red that I've been telling you all about. Clip after clip and whip after whip, my gin draws are keeping me safe and stoked. I really love them, and I think you guys will too. Check them out. You can look for Petzl draws at your local gear shop, of course, and pop on over to Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. And this episode is also sponsored by Friction Labs Chalk, which has been keeping my hands on the rock better than ever as I've been grabbing tiny little holds and resting on sloper rails all fall long. I've been using their Secret Stuff Liquid Chalk as a base layer for my long climbs, which I'm spending like 15 minutes on this route that I'm working on. So it's nice to have that base layer there. And then I chalk up in between sequences 
using their Gorilla Grip, which I have been using for many, many years now. There's no fillers, no rosin, no drying agents. They don't mess with that stuff, which means it lasts longer and it keeps your skin healthy. Friction Labs loves helping climbers to perform at their best, which is why they'll let you try their stuff risk-free so that you can see the difference. Enter code STRUGGLE20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. Chalk up less and climb more with Friction Labs. So just a little something to note here, this interview took place just before Jonathan sent his most recent 515, Tommy Caldwell's Fortress of Solitude test piece, Flex Luther, what a climb. Now I didn't want to leave that out of this interview, so Jonathan was gracious enough to connect on a follow-up chat after he did that climb, but then we ended up jamming for like 45 minutes and it is too good to cut down, so I'm just going to release that follow-up chat as its own episode here pretty soon. Maybe as a bonus episode for patrons of the show. I'm not quite sure. I'm still working on it. But speaking of patrons, hi. Hi, patrons. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm humbled and I am grateful for how many of y'all have come aboard to support this little show. And of course, you get access to those really cool pro clinics. You get ad-free episodes. You get your own now secret RSS feed. So these special episodes will load right into your pod player. And of course, you get access to all sorts of other bonus content. It warms my heart to have your support, which is great because it's now getting pretty cold down here in the podcast slash utility closet, which I'm realizing doesn't have any heat. So if you're not a patron and you want to warm my heart and my feet, think about joining the community. I'm going to tell you all about that in a little bit here. We're having a really good time. But first, let's get ready to go big here with the master of tryhard, Jonathan Segrist. All right, the levels look good. Let's jump in. Let's let's not even waste any time with the chit chat. Let's let's dive in. There's too much rich territory to cover here, my man. Um, and and before we get specific into your training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, let's just talk about struggle through Jonathan Segrist's eyes. What what do you see, and how do you perceive struggle through the lens of rock climbing? Well, I would say that struggle is kind of you have the beginning and the end and struggles, everything in between, right? I mean, in regards to climbing, I think that just efforts and commitment, and I'm trying to think of some words that are analogous to struggle, you know, but I, I think that when I think about struggle, I just think about kind of trying without any definite certainty about the outcome. Hmm. Um, and, and that's like, um, uh, not always the case, but, you know, a large part, that's the case. Like, no matter what level you're at, I think that it wouldn't be fun if we knew for certain if we'd succeed or not, or if we knew, if we knew exactly how to do some route or to, to get stronger or whatever it was, if it was, if it was like, if it was really obvious, I don't think that it would be that fun for all of us. So, so I think that, that figuring it out and kind of like, dealing with the unknown as part of the interesting thing about climbing. Has that changed for you? You've been climbing for a bit now. How long you been at this? 20 years or so? You know, has, has, your, has your relationship with struggle or that view changed since, you know, your earlier days? Yeah, I think, I think it has. I, I think primarily it's changed in that I, um, I've learned to enjoy kind of the, 
all the times between beginning and end um, mm. on each different route or challenge that like I, you know, I come face to face with. And I, I think just more patience in general and more, I have so much experience now, like living in that space of uncertainty in the space of, of really wanting something and trying really hard. That now with, with the experience, I think it's, it just seems, it feels more natural to me. I think it was more kind of anxiety inducing or stressful earlier on because that's really kind of what it's about, right? Is like, if you want to improve at anything in life and it goes beyond climbing, there's a certain level of discomfort that you have to voluntarily put yourself through. And it's, it's so much easier said than done. But the reality is that the more relaxed or the more patient you become with those times, the, the more access you're going to have to uh, real growth, you know? So yeah, I think that if I've learned, you know, like from a very macro perspective, I think that if I've learned anything or things have changed in regards to that over the last 18 years, it's just that it's just like, you know, I, this is how it's, this is how it's going to be, you know, and, and I'm going to settle into this experience and try and learn the best I can from it. And it might turn out, uh, you know, quote unquote successful or not, but basically just coming to the realization that I'm going to live in this space of being challenged and being uncertain a lot, like most of the time. Hell yeah. Love it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm psyched, man. Let's just dive in. Let's get into training and where have you, or, or do you specifically, uh, struggle with your training, Jonathan? Yeah. I mean, man, that's another thing that has just evolved so much for me over the years. For the first almost decade of my climbing, I didn't really do anything that you would consider training. I really just went a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I, as I learned more and I was more ambitious to like change after basically once I felt like just the climbing wasn't doing enough for me, then I started to think more and adopt more ideology around training and, and practice around training. But I, I think that, uh, like exactly like you said, I think all the things that go unseen is really what it's kind of all about. Like I can't, I can't like share every element of my life, nor do I necessarily want to, but yeah, I mean, every, everyone I know that climbs at any really high level, they, they put a lot of effort into what they're doing. And, um, We've all had struggles and, and uh, you know, questions and hesitations with the, the energy that we spend. And like I was saying, I mean, it's evolved for me. So I think in the beginning, like there was a time in my life when it was a huge struggle to give up on cardiovascular activity because I really love to run. And I, you know, it was really, really difficult and like a year long process for me, at least talking to trainers and talking to people and, and basically having them say, look, if you want to have the most amount of energy possible for a rock climbing trainee, then you should consider not doing all these running activities kind of thing, you know? Um, and, and I was the kind of guy that would run on rest days, never giving mm -hmm. myself full rest. And that was another really difficult, I struggled with that. I struggled with like, letting go of that activity and that like kind of uh, tireless desire to be exercising, you know, or, or feel... Like, and, and, you know, I've interacted with some younger climbers recently that really reminds me of the same mentality that I had feeling like if you're not like going your absolute hardest, then you're 
falling back, you know, mm-hmm. which over the years I've learned that no, like rest is actually like, it's a key component of all of it. Like the, the other things don't even matter if you don't have time to rest. So that's been a big transition for me as well. I mean, and I feel well past that now. I totally embrace the resting and I have for many years. <laughs> well, on the running, just before we move on from that, because I think this is really interesting. And and I spoke with Tommy Caldwell a little while ago, and he's also like kind of a glutton for like constant cardiovascular strain, it seems like. And, you know, you're you're you have many superpowers, but I think like a a top superpower of, of yours, certainly what you're known for is staving off these in, incredibly pumpy climbs, these really long, hard, relentless power endurance style climbing. And I wonder if, you know, that really heavy generalized cardio base that maybe came from running or I know like you're into mountain biking and that kind of thing as well. Can you attribute some of your climbing success and your style of climbing to that? Or, you know, were these people that you were talking to just saying like, look, you're actually siphoning away energy from what you should be doing is more mileage on route, like cardio, but cardio while climbing as opposed to cardio while running. I want to I want to say this quote really quickly just before I forget it. But I think I think it's Steve Bechtel who said this originally. I can't remember where I read it for the first time, but he said that running is as good for your climbing as climbing is good for your running. Um, and I, and I think that what he meant by that was basically they're so different in nature that if you, you know, and, and the reality is, is that I, I used to love running and like, like throughout my youth, I was riding my mountain bike a lot and racing mountain bikes. So it brought me a ton of joy. And, and for a lot of people, it's worth it to make a light sacrifice in their climbing performance to have the joy that comes from that. So I sure. totally give those people like as much space as they want to take. Um, for for those things, but I do think that you hinted on something interesting too, and I don't know if my experiences with so much cardiovascular activity directly helped my climbing. That could very well be true, like from a physiological standpoint. But I can say that from a mental, emotional standpoint, it definitely helped. Because I think that I spent so much time kind of in the pain box that I was able to, when I transitioned into more climbing, I was really able to like keep going even when I felt like I wanted, I so badly wanted to give up. And I think that that's one of those like skills that you learn when like doing long runs or when like, especially mountain bike racing, like when I used to race mountain bikes cross country, it's so much about like pain, like just being Mm -hmm. like just like deep in the pain you know and trying to pass somebody uphill when you've already been riding for 11 miles or whatever is like so agonizing so i think some of that definitely helped me on those like really long routes to kind of keep to have the the courage to kind of keep trying even though i felt like there was no way you know um and there probably like i said there might have been some physiological advantages too but i wouldn't necessarily take anything back but i also probably would recommend that if a a 10 year old kid really wanted to be good at rock climbing, I wouldn't tell them to just run for the next six years. I would tell them to go in the gym and, you know, use the tension board or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's interesting. And and I have read some similar things on that with regard to just like getting generalized cardio or 
capillary development that you, you know, you would just do like some real moderate 30 minutes on a tread wall, you know, as opposed to 30 minutes on a treadmill, you know, which is interesting. But I, I think, yeah, sanity comes into play as well. And it's like, if we're all just, most of us are climbing for fun rather than paying the bills. And so it's like, yeah, you know, if like taking a run once a week brings you some joy, then does it matter all that much if it's like not leveling up your climbing that much more? Yeah, totally. Yeah. But you mentioned something there that I thought was interesting as well, which was kind of what you would tell a 10 year old kid is, you know, to spend more time like on the board. I've seen videos of you in your garage. You got what looks to be a pretty simple yet heinous um, kind of spray wall setup that you got there. And I heard recently on an interview, it might have been with Steven on the Nugget, where you were talking about how you had for a while been really systematic with your training and then more recently have kind of gotten back to more climbing based training, which is which is how you started. You said, right, like for your first 10 years, you mostly just climbed. Then you got yeah. into training. And now are you is there a new balance that you're kind of shifting into? Yeah, totally. So that is true. There was like a three or four year period where I did a ton of, you know, pretty close by the book training period, kind of periodization. But then, you know, there's also been some times when I did like nonlinear periodization, like Steve Bechtel's really coached me a lot in that regard. But yeah, as far as like, you know, keeping a journal and attaching weight to my harness and going in. And I really haven't done much of that for years. And I think that probably within the next year or two, I will do some more of that just to see if I can squeeze the more, uh, you know, gains out of that type of method. But yeah, for me, I mean, the thing that has been, the thing that I've realized is if I spend two months just in the gym, climbing on plastic and and hanging on a hangboard. Um, I go back out on rock and it feels so foreign to me. And it takes me, even though I feel at heart like a rock climber, I'm, I'm much more of a rock climber than I am like a, you know, training athlete. Um, it, it's, I still, it still feels foreign to me and there's still, and I'm not sure if I'm doing it wrong or something that could totally be it, but it always feels like there's something missing. Like I can come out of the gym feeling piping strong, but then I go on to rock. If I've, you know, if I haven't touched rock for a few months, I'll come on to rock and it'll be like, I'll feel like there's something totally missing. Like, like I've missed a piece of the puzzle and then it's some weeks before I, it all like clicks. And I think that that's totally normal for most people. But what I've noticed is that I can integrate a lot more climbing into my training and that could be on a board, but then, I mean, I like, I really like outside climbing as part of my actual training. And the more I integrate, the better I feel when I go on that trip. Like, it, it's like, it's one for one. You know, if I have one day a week of outside climbing, then when I get on the trip, you know, I feel a certain way. If I have two days a week, then I feel better. If I have three days a week, then I feel better. So some things I've experimented with in the past couple of years, is like going day on day off where I'm actually outside climbing every other day, but I'm not going all the way to the death. I'm more using it as like more or less my warm up. And then at the end of the day, when I come back, 
I'll add in some supplemental training exercises, like some hangboarding or some weights or something like that. But then I'll rest entirely the next day because otherwise for me, that'd be too much volume to do that like two on one off or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've had a lot of success with that. The only issue with that is that once you go on a trip, ideally you really want to be climbing two on one off because just to have the, just to have enough volume to actually get enough tries on whatever route it is or whatever boulder problem or whatever to do it in the limited amount of time. For sure. Uh, and I find that it does take me a little while to adjust. If I'm used to a day on day off schedule, I need a week or two to adjust to two on one off. So it's like, you know, it's so funny. There's all these like, you're just pulling levers, I feel like with all the training, you know, you're constantly like balancing between, okay, is my power really good? Okay, well, then my stamina is probably going to be a little bit worse. And okay, I'm feeling really good statically, but, you know, can I do it dynamically? And then on and same stuff with this, it's like, can I go really high intensity, but more rest? Okay, well, then when it comes time to actually try and put this, put these performance gains to rock, then you're like, oh, now I'd like to actually be at the wall more than like three days a week, you know? So I think the, the especially with training, every person should be their own little scientist and, and listen and learn. But um, experiment, you know, and, and try something slightly different each season and take the things that work for you and, and kind of get rid of the things that seem like they didn't. And if there's someone out there that you really trust, then go all in on what they're saying and, and just see what's up with it, you know, because because there's just so many different paths to the same conclusion. All right, man, let's dive into nutrition now. And where have you struggled or do you struggle with your nutrition? Oh, man. Um, my my principal struggle with nutrition, for sure, is that I have an insatiable sweet tooth. And I know I've actually never like since I left college, I've been not really like I don't drink too much. Um, in fact, like a lot of times nowadays, because my fiance, Shana, she basically doesn't drink at all. So, I mean, there's times when I go like months without really having a drink. And that's not like something I'm trying to do. It's just something that doesn't like I don't. And I don't you know, I, I eat pretty healthy for the most part, but I just can't I can't not have sweets like. Even, you know, I, I remember reading this interview with Ramon Julian, uh, Ramonette, who's um, often overlooked Catalan climber who I really admire. He's unquestionably one of the best climbers who ever lived. Um, and he has one of the most impressive resumes of almost anyone. And he's like an inch or two shorter than I am. So I'm always like inspired by him. Um, <laughs> but I remember, I remember hearing an interview with him and uh, he said that he hadn't had chocolate for like, it was something like 10 years or something like that, you know, he oh was on up circuit and he was like, and you know, he felt like that was a really important part of his performance. Um, and I just remember thinking like, there's no carrot that you could hang in front of me that would possibly let me get to that point, like to not have sweets for 10 years. Like, I just don't think I could do it. What is it? Like, what's your go-to? What are, what are you, what's your kryptonite sweet? Okay, so my go-to is quite simple, actually. I get, a, I get a bag of chocolate chips that's really meant for baking, but I just like to eat the chocolate chips, and then I have, like, a jar of peanut butter. And I basically just, yeah. I oh, make yeah. my own little Reese's peanut butter cups, basically, in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's funny you mentioned this, because Shana posted on Instagram just recently, like, the crag snacks she brings and you know yeah. like 
you know, melon and a banana. And it was like a really funny little reel that she did. And, and like my post back was like, yeah, that's basically my same routine, except for all of those containers are filled with nutter butters. (laughs) And like, I just do it. Like I'm, I feel what you're saying here. It's interesting. So my wife doesn't drink either. And so like, I almost never drink unless like I'm at the crag with my buddies and we'll crack a beer or something like that. But otherwise, like my Achilles is 1000% sweet, specifically donuts, but I'll hit the semi-sweet chocolate chips out of the bag. No problem, dude. (laughs) All, All day long. Yeah. So... It sounds like abstinence isn't the way, right? Like you're not no. swearing off chocolate for a decade. No. I, like, how do you strike that balance? Man, I, and this is why I say that this has been a struggle because like, it's the only thing in my life, I mean, from a food or substance perspective where like part of it's weight management, obviously, right? Like nobody, like nobody who's a professional athlete should be eating like an entire cake every night. Uh, <laughs> Except for maybe those power lifters, because they need to eat like 14,000 calories. That's right. Yeah. But, like Michael Phelps. Yeah, exactly. So part of it's that. But another part of it is I do actually notice that when I go in too heavy on the sweets, the inflammation is worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I for sure notice that. Like if I'm training, especially, and I have a few nights where there's like some extra birthday cake laying around and I go heavy on that, then I will notice my joints creaking a little bit more than normal. So there's like health reasons why I would tr- want to try to resist a little bit. You know what I'm saying? And I've, and I've never been, been one to say that you should not have dessert because I think dessert's amazing. So, but what I'm trying to say, and this, this is what I was getting at, is that there are literally days when I'm like, okay, like my joints feel a little creaky. I'm really going into like heavy project mode. Like I'm going to try and resist the sweets for like a week and just see how that goes. And I, I'll be saying that. And then at some point during the day, I'll find myself just like having a handful of chocolate chips. And I'm almost like, like, it feels out of control. You know, I'm like, oh, someone possessed my body and like made me go and do this. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I didn't even make the conscious decision to eat it. It's just like there. So I just like took it, you know, and had some. So um, I feel that. Yeah. So, so anyways, so the, the, the way forward for me is not total abstinence. The way forward is just to, just to, yeah, have a little every day and just like enjoy it and just try and, you know, balance it as much as I can. I mean, I don't think that it's killing me or, or like, you know, critically impacting my climbing performance or any other aspect of my life, but it is just the one thing like diet wise that I know, um, that. I would probably benefit maybe by cutting back on it a little bit, but you know, it's again, it's like one of those things where to bring myself, it's like the running thing, you know, it's like for me, I'm I'm just going to have some sweets, dude. And it's going to be okay. Like, you know what I mean? It's not going to, it's not going to kill me. And there are plenty of other sacrifices in my life that I make to climb well. And it's like, you can't make all of them because at the end of the day, you're going to climb really poorly if you're just like an unhappy person. Hell yeah. You're here to that. I mean, what if, what if the, what if the key to 9B plus was just eating more chocolate chips? I would be climbing 9C on site, dude. <laughs> that was the thing. That's sick. Um, and so in, in Shayna, your, your fiance, um, she's a nutritionist. Is that right? She is. Yeah. She's a, she's a certified nutrition therapist. Yeah. So how is that? I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of upside to that, but um, like, what are the pros and cons of having cutting edge information and guidance right there right. under the roof? Totally. I mean, 
overall, it's absolutely a major pro, uh, especially because she's an unbelievable cook. And um, so I get to benefit a lot from that very often. I've seen it. She posts very mouthwatering, like yes, dude, dinner food porn. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I'm I'm very lucky. Although when I go on a trip to Spain alone or whatever, then I end up you know eating just like cabbage and and potato chips pretty much the whole time. Um, but no, it, it's it's really awesome, and she's really helped me in so many ways because I have been a vegetarian uh, since I was 18. Um, and I just turned 37, so almost 20 years. And there are times, including right now, when I do eat a small amount of fish. So I'd say, you know, let's say five years of those 20 years, I've also been a pescatarian. But the overarching theme is that I don't really eat very many, if any, meat products. And now, and Shana is totally vegan. That's why I'm saying all this is rel- uh, relevant. So Shana is, is, she has definitely helped me get like the proper amount of nutrients and protein and stuff like this without eating um, many, as any animal products. So that's been really, really cool. And then it's also just cool to, you know, run questions by her if I'm worried about or curious about like, oh, I think I could use some extra this in my diet or this in my diet. Like, how should I go about it? You know, so um, no, it's definitely hugely beneficial. I think especially for athletes that are trying to back on their meat intake, which I think we all should just environmentally. Um, it's awesome to have guidance, you know? Yeah. I'm, you know, I've been um, vegetarian myself for 15 years. My entire family's, my kids are vegetarian. And, and, you know, the good news is today in this modern day, there's, there's so many options, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be a grilled cheese for every meal. Um, so <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, you know, there's great, there's great vegan and vegetarian proteins out there. Do you do a lot of like shakes or supplements, whether it's protein or collagen or anything else, you know, like what, what's, do you have a, a kind of a routine that you like in that world? Definitely. Yeah. So I started as an athlete with Fizz Advantage, um, maybe three years ago ish. And they make like unquestionably the best vegan protein powder on the market. I've tried a bunch of them um, over the years. Some of them give me like horrific stomach aches. Other ones like will have caffeine or some weird ingredients in them for no reason. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I really, really like the Fizz Advantage. It's called PowerPlex. So that's become something, especially during training blocks that I have every day, like for in the middle of the day as like a smoothie or, you know, just put it in water or in milk or something like that. But Like for me, I normally eat eggs in the morning. I have like pretty standard meals for the most part, like in the morning, especially if I'm not with Shana, if I'm on a climbing trip or whatever, in the morning I'll have like some vegetables um, mixed in with eggs and then normally some tortillas, like basically make little breakfast burrito things. And then during the middle of the day, if I'm cragging, I'll normally pick like a peanut butter and jelly or some fruit or some bars, like it kind of changes every day. But then at the end of the cragging day or at the end of the training day, I always have a, um, a protein smoothie. So that's like how I get the protein in the middle of the day. And then normally for dinner, I'll have some vegetables, some rice, some noodles, and then some protein that could be from like my, my choice dish is canned sardines. Uh, but if I'm not going to eat fish, then I would have tofu or like, you know, tempeh or something like that. So that's like, pr- honestly, like most of my days go something like that. And give or take, you know, if I'm in France, I'm going to be eating bread every meal. Or, you know, if I'm in Italy, I'll mix in some pasta or whatever. But it like more or less, I just try and eat a bunch of 
fresh fruits, vegetables, carbs, and then mix in like, you know, some protein from eggs or uh, the protein powder or can of fish or whatever. Like a handful of chocolate chips. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then there's, well, it's only a suit <laughs> that after each of the three normal meals, you have a dessert. And then right. at night before, before bed, you have dessert. That's very European. So you're good. You're yeah, in good shape. Exactly. Yeah. All right, man, let's grip down into some tactics now, Jonathan, a rich area for us to explore with you. Uh, where have you struggled first and foremost with your tactics, do you think? Well, first of all, I, I think I, I think it's worth mentioning that I, I think tactics and the way that you approach challenges and the way that you set yourself up for those challenges is so important. And it's something that's probably not talked about enough. Just knowing, you know, when to try, like how to try, how much to rest, you know, all those things. I think all those things are like so important, like little tricks you can use to try and learn parts of a root or parts of a boulder problem better or, you know, other like approach type things I think are really, really crucial. But yeah, I mean, I think for me, tactics, I think the thing that I've struggled with the most especially recently, um, is that I, I need more rest now than I used to. Um, mm. I just turned 37 a couple of weeks ago and I, you know, compared to 31 or compared to 25, certainly like I, I'm climbing better than I have before, but I, I need more rest and I need to be more cognizant of, you know, how much I'm climbing per day, how often I'm resting, what the rest looks like, stuff like this. And so I think that tactically, that's been a little hard for me because I want to keep continuing and building my plans and building my schedule with the preconceived notion that I need X amount of time to send a route or, you know, that, you know, one week of being home is enough to, to refresh myself or whatever. And it's just not as true as it used to be, you know? So um, I've, I've run into some difficulties on a couple recent trips where I just basically tried to fit too much in. And mm -hmm. that was something that I observed a lot of, but I never really felt myself. Like I observed people going into trips and kind of biting off more than they could chew. And I don't mean with like a single route, although that does happen too, but I just mean with like, you know, ambitions to climb a certain number of routes or climb in certain different areas, knowing the different demands and stuff like that. And, um, and yeah, I think that, you know, I have made that mistake myself too now. So I'm, I'm so trying to kind of readjust and, and have a better uh, understanding of what my body needs and what it takes. Yeah. I want to explore this a, a little bit more in, in kind of a couple different ways, actually. Um, one, I'm getting older, right? I guess we're all getting older. Everybody who's listening is getting older, but I'm 43 and uh, obviously can't train as hard as maybe I would have been able to 10 years ago. But I also am a weekend warrior. So my, my livelihood doesn't depend on climbing, but also my schedule doesn't revolve around climbing. So I'm, I'm lucky if I can get in a day, a week outside and maybe a couple days or a few days at the gym. And so rest for me is built in almost kind of out of out of necessity. 
and I, I can see for somebody like you how rest needs to be much more deliberately programmed. But I am curious to how um, things work out like when you're on a, a trip and you've especially got some objectives. You've got some things that you really want to climb. Maybe they're limit projects. You're really trying to, to hit the top end there. And I would equate that for me to my good season. You know, I'm kind of in, into like the fall season here and I've got some things that I really want to accomplish. And so if I get a good weather window and if I'm feeling strong, I want to go out and I want to climb that limit project, that thing that I've really set my sights on. But I also know that that would come at the expense of climbing some submaximal things or getting to the top of routes maybe in the low to mid 12s for me where I could get up them um, in much less goes than I could if I was working on a 12D or a 13A, for example. And we all have our own version of that, whatever, whatever um, you know, grade we're climbing at, of course. But I don't know if this is specifically a rest question as much as it is almost like a, a programming question. How, how do you look at limit climbing days versus submaximal climbing days and and maybe how does rest play into that climbing at your limit is 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 really fun and red pointing well fun's maybe not the best word but you know what i mean <laughs> um <clears throat> climbing at your limit provides a lot of opportunities for growth and red pointing at your limit is is a rad experience and it's extremely rewarding but i also think that if it's all that you're trying to do all the time, then it, you can totally you can totally get blown out. And in the end, I actually don't think that it will be the best for your climbing. I think that doing some sub limit routes and having those trips where you're climbing a little bit easier stuff, um, but you're actually getting to the top frequently and you're moving over different varieties of stone, you know, you're grabbing different grips. You're not like basically going to one area and climbing just one route for weeks at a time. I do think that that has a lot of benefit to climbing as well. I think that like a general maybe framework to go by is like 50-50, you know, half the time's at your absolute limit and the other half is somewhere below it. And so you'll you'll do that even like when you go out on a trip, you're going to you've got a 3 weeks you're going to be somewhere, you'll you'll generally go 50-50. Um yes, I would say pretty close to that it might end up being more like 70 30 but then there are other times during my year where i make up for that other like quote unquote 30 percent. got but, it so there's a few things that i do tactically that i always that i'm surprised more people don't do and that one of which is like and i know that this is really difficult for those that have jobs and families and everything but um try and afford yourself more time than you think you need because there's always going to be weather that comes up or other issues with like, you know, health or, or even your performance. Or, I mean, on top of that, you know, let's say you send the route in five days instead of 10. Well, then you have five more days to enjoy easier stuff and like kind of learn more about the area and, and do a little bit more messing around and stuff like that. So I think that for someone like yourself, I would keep the really truly limit climbing to local areas the best you can you know like do your absolute hardest route in the red river gorge 
And then on those weekends, when you go to Romney or to the new or to Smith Rock or whatever, um, you can, you can choose a project level that's not at your absolute limit, but that will be a challenge for you to get done in five days, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, I, I think like, there's just so many variables trying to travel and also do your best that if you don't have weeks or months, uh, that can be that can be really hard unless it's an area that you expect to go back to over and over and over again. So, yeah, I, I do think that it, it's cool for people to choose grades one or two below their absolute hardest. Like like you've mentioned, you're trying to break into 13A. I absolutely think that that 13A should be in the red because it's something that you can go to. If you end up with a couple extra days or, you know, you can you can judge the weather and you can get there when it's weather's good. You want as many opportunities as possible with something that hard for you. And, you know, a couple years down the line, it could be that the that 13A in Smith Rock, they would be kind of agonizing to try and do over the course of a 10 day trip. Um, that's actually easy for you now, you know, or, or not easy, but it's much easier for you now. So. I really do think that like climbing at your best for those who are bound with like jobs or homes or families is it's like local areas, man. That's like the best. You can take advantage of any free time that you have. You can really be perceptive as to what the weather is going to be and how, how it's going to change and how the seasons might change. Um, and, and I think that even still, you know, even on like non, non perfect weather days, you can go out. Because I think it's really hard to perform with this sense that the time the time is always running, you know, like the mm. you're running time. That's just an extra stressor with already so many stressors when it comes to trying to do your best. Um, and so the le the less that you can have that kind of fear or that experience going on, I think the better. Yeah, I love that, man. I think how to project and how to spend one's time trying max hard versus just getting to the top of a boulder or a route or whether you're in the gym or outside. T tactically speaking, I feel like that's something that we can all, uh, speaking for myself here, but I think probably a lot of listeners as well, can learn from pros like yourself because you've just spent so much time honing that side of your tactical game. So thank you for sharing it. I think it's worth re-listening to all of that stuff again and again. Uh, as we uh, start to plan for our seasons ahead. And, you know, the last thing that I, I want to talk about here with regard to tactics before we move on to mental game is this idea that you touched on earlier about getting um, proficient, getting skilled, getting experienced on climbing over a variety of different types of terrain, different types of rock, different levels of steepness, requires a lot of different um, technique, right? Types. We, we, I touched on earlier how Alex and Jordan were giving me shit about my terrible footwork up in the Clear Light Cave on, on Limestone because I'm so used to fantastic feet being everywhere here on the Sandstone at the Red. And so um, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you've climbed into 514s on five different types of rock. You were recently in Squamish doing really technical slab, bad feet type stuff. And then immediately shifted to the 5G cave and working on those really thuggy, super steep routes. And it seems like you shouldn't be great at all of those, and, and you are. And so I'm wondering if that's something that could be trained, or tactically speaking, how we can focus on 
getting better at different styles of climbing and on different types of rock even? I mean, as we all know, just just anything that makes you uncomfortable is probably where the most growth is going to come, right? So that's a component of it. A lot of times when people ask me for training advice, I like to ask them, like, imagine any route, you know, or any boulder problem, picture for or paint a picture for me of the boulder problem or the route that makes you the most intimidated. You know, maybe it's like a vert says with little holds and blah, blah, blah. And then I just tell them like, okay, well, then you need to find that somewhere. And that's what you need to try, you know, like to really, I, I do believe really strongly in spending the majority of your energy working on weaknesses. And I've, and I've harped on this a lot. And I just really, I, I really stand by it. I just think that different rock types provide such different challenges. Like, like you just mentioned, I was just in Squamish. Um, it was awesome to be back on granite and to climb on, in my opinion, some of the best granite in the world. And what I really like about granite is that there's so much problem solving involved. Most of the time you're using features and like kind of shapes of the wall that are so different and that require you to move your body just so, so differently than you ever would find like in a limestone cave. Limestone, for the most part, tends to be like pretty straightforward, like kind of similarly to what you find like in the red, where there's pretty clearly delineated holds that you pull more or less straight down on, you know what I mean? And then to move over rock like like granite or blocky limestone, like you find in, in uh, rifle, then you have to start thinking in 3D and you have to start moving your hips in a different way. And maybe the footholds aren't facing directly towards the direction that you want to use them. So you have to start to learn to put your feet in different orientations to push against the wall. Mm-hmm. And even like you mentioned, like a huge difference between like sandstone and limestone or sandstone um, or sorry, granite and limestone is that on limestone, there's not texture everywhere on the wall. So you can't just use a random part of the wall to push with your feet. You might have to find a special place. Or if you only have a place that has no texture, then you're going to have to use a different level of body tension to push into that foot than you would on a sandstone wall. Uh, Basically, what I'm getting at is I think that the simplest and best way to to really round out your climbing skill set is to try to climb on different types of rock. Um, and it also gives you the added benefit of having some cool traveling included potentially if that's available to you and meeting new people and experiencing a new area and all this. Um, the one way, you know, cause not everyone can access that, right? So the one way that I do think is kind of interesting that might be somewhat similar <clears throat> is like, Maybe you only have access to a couple of gyms. Well, my guess is that the root setters between those different gyms are wildly different. So there's another way of changing the type of climbing that you're doing. One root setter is maybe going to use really big feet or another really small, big moves, small moves, um, different climbing gyms. You know, some might have older holds with less texture, some have newer ones. And then I think the same way about like, you know, oscillating between all the different boards. Like maybe you're used to climbing on the moon board, but the other gym has a tension board. Like use the tension board. It is dramatically different. Or use the kilter board. It's so much different or the grasshopper wall or whatever. So I think it's, I think that the the overarching principle is just this idea that the more types of rock and challenges of movement 
that you can experience, the the better suited you're going to be for even that crux at your home crag that's just a little different than the other parts of the route. You know what I mean? But just building experience on as many different types and different types of movement that you can, I think is so beneficial. If I can learn how to have more solid feet on limestone or on granite, then when I get to the red, everything's going to feel like a sandpaper, you know, hold that I can, exactly. that I can push off of. So I don't know if it's a, there's a direct translation for, for you on like, if you're going from Squamish then into like some thuggy limestone cave, um, it seems so different, but. It's definitely different. And I, and I like, so this summer, um, I was definitely a bit nervous because I spent a couple of weeks in rifle and the main goal there was to do this route, Kinder Cakes, um, which I, I did in August. And then I knew going to Squamish that I really wanted to climb this route called Spirit Quest, which for, for perspective, Kinder Cakes is like a 60 foot near horizontal route with generally good holds, just incredibly physical and um, like kind of big muscle demanding movement um, throughout the whole length. And then, and it's also limestone. And then um, Spirit Quest is, is almost dead vertical granite, highly two-dimensional edging and tiny edges and smears and really horrible feet. So I was nervous because I hadn't climbed on that style of granite for a long time. And to make that kind of transition from two like wildly different routes definitely gave me pause. Um, and so even as much as I could in between those two routes, you know, I started to m try to make the transition like, okay, I can go into the climbing gym and as tempting as it is to just go climb on the kilter board, I know that probably if I can get one or two sessions under my belt, trying to use small feet, maybe hanging on my fingers a little bit more. Um, that could come in handy by the time I got to Squamish, you know, and in, and the first week I was in Squamish, I was really overwhelmed and, and super excited with the Arcteryx Climbing Academy. It was like full on, which was awesome. But even still, I tried to break away for an hour or two a day to like move over granite, you know, before I got on like the ultimate goal, because I really do think that like, even I, I think that maybe what you were trying to suggest was that it was an easy transition, but it's not always, you know, sometimes going back and forth between those two different types of rock or whatever, even like for somebody like me that gets to travel and climb full time for decades, like it can still be a jarring and kind of like humbling experience. So the more I can do to prepare or the more I can be patient with myself as I make that transition, the better. All right, man, let's explore mental game now. Let's talk about mindset. Uh, and of course, as always, let's start with where you've struggled with your mental game in the past or, or maybe even currently. I mean, at least the first thing that comes to mind is I'm, I'm a really, really determined and goal-oriented person. And so there's like a switch in my brain where whatever's not a goal to me or doesn't, whatever I don't necessarily care too much about, I could you know, I care less, I take it or leave it. But as soon as I make this, this the change in my brain to say that like this goal, this route, this trip, this experience is incredibly important to me. Um, it's really hard for me to give up or for me to like walk away empty handed. And, uh, you know, it might seem like from the outside, I just send everything that I try and it's always success, success, success or whatever. But the reality is that there's a lot of things that I've 
that I've failed at even after continuous continued attempts um, or, you know, thousands of dollars in airline tickets or trips or, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, I think that that's that's a little hard for me because I I really take things pretty seriously. And I I feel that that's part of the reason why I can have success, because I I pivot pretty hard into the process and of goal setting and, and pre- preparation, and arriving prepared and this kind of thing. And so basically the reason I say that that's been hard for me is because then, um, because yeah, the reality is that there's going to be failure, especially when you're really pushing yourself and, uh, you know, walking away from roots and, and walking away from roots that I know from the macro perspective, aren't really that important. Like, like I'll give you an example. So let's say that I go to a cliff and I'm there to climb like some really special 515 thing that I've been dreaming about and training about forever. Well, let's say that I decide to to kind of warm up for the route. I decide to do some just like 513s or whatever to get my head in the game for that type of rock or whatever it is. If there's like a, you know, an easier route there that really feels hard to me and maybe I can't do it in a day or a couple of days or whatever it is, then I'll lose my motivation for the main project and I'll feel like anything that's difficult for me, I have a really strong feeling that there's something to learn from that experience. And so I feel like now this is the most important thing that I have going on because because I, I've demonstrated that I can't do it and that there's something to learn that I have to overcome something, you know? And so Sometimes it can, it can be distracting and it can, and it can, my, that kind of like psycho dedication can actually work against me because I know that from a logical perspective, it'd be better to just move on because that's not why I'm there. And, you know, I've, I've, in working with Steve Bechtel, he's really helped me to kind of prioritize big goals and let all the other ones fall to the wayside if they're mm-hmm. nothing less than like preparation. But even still, that can be hard for me. And I think that on top of all that, like I was just been mentioning throughout that, when I really accept something as a goal and, and it really means something to me and I prepare for it, like, I really, really want to see it through. Well, yeah, and, and I'm sure that grind, that determination is in, in part what has helped to push you to the top of this sport. But I, I am curious, as, as you said there, you know, what happens when it doesn't come together? What happens when it doesn't go? What is your view of failure? Yeah, I I think that there, like I said, there are just times when it doesn't go that way. And then um, it's a great opportunity for me to be introspective and to try and realign my goals and to realign, you know, what what I'm really after and and also kind of try and reframe this idea of failure. Um, And I think that that's where a lot of like cool personal growth and emotional growth comes from in climbing because the reality is, is that anyone you see out there that's like, you know, elite and, and doing their best at climbing, they've run into a ton of roadblocks and a ton of experiences that didn't go as planned. And uh, I think what separates the lifers, the ones that are around for decades versus the ones that are around for a season or two is that ability to digest failure and to deal with, um, with like being committed to something and then basically having it fall through. Yeah, it just sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> it's it's uh I don't know it's hard you know like I guess maybe because I've I've been experiencing it a little bit on my on my fall goals here um when you set your mind on something you set your heart on something especially 
it is challenging when it doesn't come through, but I, I can definitely see how also that is what will motivate us to achieve if, if you, you can't put yourself out there to um, accept failure and, and then to use it to become better and stronger, not just as a climber, but as a person. So yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, is there anything else along those lines? Because you are climbing the absolute hardest routes in the world, you, you may face this um, a little bit more acutely than the rest of us, but we all have our hearts and our minds set on these limit projects, whatever that is for us. V2, V12, um, you know, anything up and down the ladder of sport grades, just a new route at the gym that we want to climb. How do you work through those emotions? And, and how do you continue to just get up every day and go out and try really hard? I'm very much still learning as we all are. Um, and I think that the last thing I wanted to say is in regards to that is like, I, I think that the real balance is like, you're never going to achieve your absolute best. And you're certainly never going to achieve like, you know, one of the hardest routes on earth or, you know, whatever pursuit it is that you're in without being relentlessly determined and and goal oriented right but at the same time you need to operate in a kind of airy uh light-hearted uplifted place to actually see those things through so it's that's why it's so hard and it's always going to be the hardest element of climbing your best is balancing that like i really really fucking care about this thing and also hey you know what I'm just out here doing my thing, trying to do my best. You know what I mean? Like those two attitudes, you know, I'm just like, today's great. And it's beautiful. You know, it's like, it's really difficult to have those two attitudes at the same time. Um, but it's a fun, it's an awesome challenge. And it's like, I wish I could say that it gets easier and easier and easier, but it kind of doesn't. It's just like always still there. Um, and and <laughs> to, to answer the question that you just, just uh, posited, I think that, you know, one thing that one of my like mantras that I always kind of try and tell myself and those around me is that, all you can do is try, right? Like there's a lot of things that are outside of our control. Um, most anxiety, no matter what you're anxious about, is about something in the future. It's not about what's happening currently, right? The anxiety is about, oh, I'm not gonna do this thing. And, I, and I've been talking to my friends about it all season. And like, I've trained for so long and like, I, you know, I feel like a failure for not like being able to see this whole thing through and blah, blah, blah. But that's, that's having to do with the future. You know what I mean? Like what's in the present and when you're at the cliff and when you're tying in, what really matters is you just honestly trying, you know? And as long as like that's, as long as you can tie in and leave the ground with the attitude of like, no matter what happens, I know my skin's kind of bad. I know the conditions aren't that great. I know today's my last day. None of that stuff is going to matter if if you can't put a good effort on the wall. So I think that I think that any way that you can get yourself to remember that the the, the best method to the top is just to give it hell and just to really try and do your best, then you know, I mean everything else is uh is kind of secondary, I think. Um and and I do think that you can use that same attitude in the macro scale of just saying, you know, maybe you spent a whole season trying a route and you didn't finish it and you got to fly home now or you've got to drive home or, you know, go back to school or whatever it is. Um, there, 
it's unquestionable that you learned something and probably a lot of things from that experience that you can carry forward with you. So don't let that fleeting moment pass. Like take an opportunity to say, what did I learn? Okay, at the very least, let me write down all my beta. At the very least, let me get like all the data that I need to know about like what the good conditions are and make a note about that. Or like, hey, I met all these new people or, you know, I discovered a way of respecting this this route or this this area that I hadn't before. Um, you know, there's always learning. And if you really, like if I look back at like quote unquote failures that have happened in my climbing, like they were all learning experiences. So years down the line, you're going to look back and it's just going to be a small piece of the overall puzzle. You know, it's you moving towards the eventual, you know, best version of yourself. And that's kind of failure is going to have to be a part of that. So you just have to kind of internalize it, you know. This has just been such an insightful chat, man. I'm really grateful for how open and accessible and insightful you've been. I want to now shift and um, kind of rise above the minutia of of climbing, training, and performance and talk about things that you're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Uh, and what is that for you, Jonathan? I, I mean, I think that one of the things that really drives me is just my friends and my community here in Las Vegas and around the United States and around the world. I just love spending time with these people and feeling like I have a family. Uh, I'm an only child, so it's pretty cool to have all these people around me that I feel are like brothers and sisters, you know. I've worked now for a number of years with the Southern Nevada Commerce Coalition. I'm really uh, excited about being a part of that. Um, I first created this event that's, or was part of creating an event that's called the Red Rock Rehab. So that's something that I'm giving some energy to now. And um, that's basically two days of stewardship projects. So we go out and we work together with the BLM Red Rock to do, you know, it could be trail cleanup. It could be graffiti cleanup. It could be helping them with some kind of building efforts or, you know, picking up dog poop or putting new signage up or whatever. And then at night we have speakers and presenters come uh, and just trying to share the stoke. And that's the community aspect, just to bring people together. Um, Las Vegas has always been kind of an interesting climbing community because we don't have a really strong gym scene like a lot of the other bigger climbing centers do. So uh, you end up with a lot of different people going to, because we have so many different crags. Um, it's possible to, you know, go a whole year without seeing some people that live down the street from you, even though you're both climbers, because you might be just kind of skipping one another at different crags. So there's a really cool opportunity to bring everybody together on the same roof uh, with the same goals um, of just to place rad. So yeah, that's that's a big thing that I'm working on. And um, and then just really quickly, the other thing that I'm really excited about that I just started this year was to work with Protect Our Winters, which is a climate advocacy group. I, I've been really interested in, in environmental sustainability since I got my degree in that realm at Naropa University a long time ago. Uh, I always thought I wanted to go into that field. So this has been a really cool opportunity for me to put some of that education to use uh, and work together with Pow and do do some activations and work together with governments. And Pow is just such a powerful advocacy group and lobbying group. And they've like gotten real things done um, over the last several years. So it's just cool to align with them and all kinds of other players outdoor industry um, around that objective. So 
yeah, I hope to bring some more of that to some of the brands that I work with and some of the events that I do. Um, and, uh, you know, goes along the same lines. I know that you guys are working together with the Honol Foundation, which is awesome. I love what they do. And uh, Alex and I can always get together on the phone and dork out about environmental stuff. It's super fun to to chat with him about that kind of stuff. Oh, definitely. I love what Protect Our Winners is doing. Uh, in fact, a, a handful of athletes who have been on the struggle here are ambassadors for for POW. Our, our first ever guest, Emily Harrington, uh, of course, but but others since. And they're just doing such fantastic work. Definitely encourage everybody who's listening to check out the great work that Protect Our Winters is doing. And, you know, one of the other things that I, I just want to touch on here in this chapter that you didn't bring up is route development. And it's something that I feel like it's almost like the unsung heroes of all of rock climbing are are people like yourself who are out there putting up routes, figuring it out, cleaning them, putting in bolts. And that is some hard ass work. And I'm sure on on one part, it's it's rewarding and, and a little bit self-serving because <laughs> when there aren't hard enough routes around that are established for you to climb, you have to figure them out, which you've been doing a lot of um, in in like the 5G cave, but but also, I mean, all over the country, you've put up some of the most iconic routes, um, certainly many here in my backyard of the Red River Gorge. And that takes a ton of work. It's not just you. There's there's a, a small but, but fierce group of men and women out there who are bolting routes for us sport climbers or cleaning up boulders. And I just wanted to touch on that um, for a second as well. Just how do you see that fitting into your career here as a climber? It's easy to get into route development when you feel like you just want more routes to climb, right? But then I think that it's impossible not to feel the psych of other people climbing on your roots and enjoying your roots. I mean, man, I can't tell you like how often... Um, so a really long time ago, um, 13 or 14 years ago, my dad and I developed this area in Colorado called Wizard's Gate and several other areas nearby. And amongst all the climbing accomplishments that I've had and like selfish goals that I've set and stuff like that, the 511s and the 512s at that area, you know, I, I get more um, like people, <clears throat> more sites, people coming, talking to me about those routes, those like 5.11s, 5.10s, there's even 5.9s there. You know, they get so psyched on that, even to this day, that that is just such a rewarding feeling. I mean, I've always felt like I was indebted to the climbing community for how much it's given me. And at the very least, you know, I, I'm really happy and proud of the hundreds of routes I've been able to bolt you know, to give, give somebody, um, you know, that awesome fall project that they're looking forward to or that like sweet onsite or whatever it is you know so that is like super important to me and i do think that um i worry sometimes because i don't see as much enthusiasm around root development as there has been in the past because there's just so many good routes to climb now and it's so so much fun to just go and climb like well-established really good quality routes and there's nothing wrong with that by any means but, I, you know, something that I, I've been thinking about a little bit that I think would be so cool, and I hope that we could get over the liability of it, is at one of these upcoming climbing events, I would love to get a couple of very smart people with a lot of experience together and actually do a root development clinic. Like, have one of the all-day clinics be basically how to bolt a root, like how to respectfully and safely bolt and contribute roots to an area. Um, I think that would just be like the coolest thing. Like learn 
maybe even two days, take two days and just learn actually like the logistical and physical side of bolting a route. But then on top of that, like, you know, impart some of the ethics around like, you know, here's how you make sure that this is going to be okay. Here's how you talk to like land managers. Here's how you talk to the locals and see about like bolting practices and other ethics at the crag. And um, I think something like that would be really rad because I do think that uh, the more people and the more diverse um, people with diverse backgrounds and, and skill sets and desires that we get putting up roots, even if it's not frequently, I think that just like makes climbing a better place. I love that idea. I hope, you know, those who are organizing events that are listening right now, um, man, that is rad. I, I, I spoke with a climber just recently, Maiza Lima, and she's been, you know. Oh, yeah. Maiza is a badass. Yeah. Yeah. She's so cool. And like, you know, kind of spoke along those lines where she was like, I just, I think there's interest from people to develop routes and, and both, but it's like, pretty freaking intimidating you know to get out there and figure out how to do it and am i doing it right and will i kill someone and or like is this just like a junk route how how is this how are these placements you know like just kind of like a lot of the basics and just as you would go to um a clinic and it would be like intro to trad climbing and how to put gear or build an anchor that's safe or something like that like how great to have something like that for bolting it's very much a trade it's like the secret trade that has to be passed on right now if Right. If you happen to see Joe Kinder or Andy Rather, can you hunt them down and yeah, have them show you something like, you know, how cool to um to bring it a little bit more into the light. Um, I hope we can do that. And and in the meantime, thank you for all the work that you put in on on routes out there, man. Appreciate it. Oh, of course, man. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. It's really fun. And like you said, I mean, there's a there's a selfish aspect to it. Um, but then you know when you see your community and your friends like getting stoked and. And sharing the love. I remember there was a time like a couple of years ago when if, if you've ever gone to 8a.nu, like on the left hand side, there's kind of like a running like list of ascents from people, you know, that are just like popping up every day. Everyone's like logging their new ascents. And there was a time when I think I even screen capped it when like there was like, you know, somebody had just sent one of my roots at the fins and then another one was at Wizards Gate and then another one was like you know, at uh, Castaway Crag, and then another one was at Wolf Point, and then and another one at the Red or whatever. And it was like the whole bar, maybe except for one, were all my roots. And it was like one of the <laughs> like coolest and proudest moments to ever, you know, just to be like all these people in all these different places are having an awesome time on these roots that, you know, I didn't necessarily create, but, you know, I was able to make them safe or both so that people could climb them. And like that, that is like, you know, that's just like such a sick feeling to be like, oh, hell yeah. You know, like, I'm like, it's one thing to motivate others to climb, but it's another thing to really like genuinely like make a safe path for them to climb. You know, it's like pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, how rewarding that has to be. And, and, you know, when we think about our, our careers and, and the legacy that we'll leave behind and, and whatever it is that we're doing as rock climbers, just the inevitability is that in the future, there's kids that are going to climb a heck of a lot harder than the hardest people are climbing right now, right? And so to be able to have a legacy of route development where you're creating these fun, safe, incredible, memorable opportunities for hundreds and then likely many, many thousands of climbers into the future, uh, that's just so cool, man. Um, 
This has been a real pleasure, Jonathan. You're you're climbing the hardest you've ever climbed, the oldest you've ever been. <laughs> so chalk one up for uh, for 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 those of us who are pushing up into our um, 30s and 40s. Uh, it's really inspiring to see how you're climbing, how you're training, and just how you look at the sport in general, man. And I just cannot wait to see what the year holds for you and and what the future holds for you, man. You're just on fire. Keep it up, dude. No, Ryan, thanks so much, man. This is great. I love your questions. And uh, no, I've been listening to the podcast, so um, I'm, I'm really uh, honored and grateful to be a, be a part of it now. So thanks, man. And that wraps up our chat with one of the best in the game and also one of the coolest, Jonathan Segrist. What did you all think of this? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at Jonathan Segrist, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and at The Struggle Climbing Show. Now, in a second, I'm going to share my takeaways from this fantastic chat with Jonathan and also give you an opportunity to score some swag. But first, let's support the brands that are supporting the struggle. Let's give it up for Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle, as well as J-Star's choice when it comes to leveling up his nutrition game. Y'all try their vegan Powerplex for a delicious way to access the protein and amino acids needed to recover faster and build muscle while you sleep. I love all of their flavors, with chocolate probably as the current leader, and maybe that's just because Jonathan and I have been talking a lot about chocolate here in this episode. You guys can try it for yourself. You are going to feel the difference. Look for it in Europe from the Epic TV online shop and in the U.S. at select gyms and, of course, at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. And a shout out to Petzl for being the official gear sponsor of The Struggle. I am absolutely loving their quick draws as I project at my limit. They quick smoothly and they inspire full confidence as I try hard and take whip after whip after whip. You can find those sweet gins at your local gear shop or pop on over to Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. And a big chalky high five to our friends over at Friction Labs. It is what top athletes use and trust for dependable, long-lasting grip, y'all. My personal favorite right now is using their secret stuff, liquid chalk, as kind of the foundation, and then using their Gorilla Grip while I'm en route to chalk up as I go. They work so well. I am definitely chalking up less frequently than I ever have on route, and that's saving me some time. It's also saving me some money. So pop on over to FrictionLabs.com, use code STRUGGLE20 for 20% off your first order, so now you can save some money too, chalk up less, and climb more with Friction Labs. Oh man, so many takeaways from this conversation. Um, I guess maybe first and foremost, Jonathan highlights uh, a bit of a theme that's been coming out this season, and that's the importance of getting enough mileage on rock. I mean, here's a guy who's climbing at the absolute top and has taken his training, of course, very, very seriously, and he's still working on finding that balance of climbing versus focused training. Whether it's in a gym or on a board or outside, that climbing movement is so critical. And of course, we can build plenty of strength and power if we just program that climbing properly. I love that. Um, what else? Oh, his 50-50 rule. I, I really personally need to start taking this advice as I have been spending probably 90% of my fall season now on my limit project and only 10% doing sublimit projects. And I think Jonathan makes a really good point here. We need to have a little bit more balance. That 50-50 rule is something that we need to aim for over the course of a year. So I've been super heavy on my project this fall. I think as I get into the winter and into the spring, I'm really gonna dial back 
and get focused on climbs, whether it's in the gym or outside on rock that I can put down in a session or maybe two sessions. And lastly, Jonathan's view on failure and how getting good with failure and using it and not getting beat down by it is, is really what separates the lifers from those who might burn out after a couple of seasons. I think that's just so important, whatever level we are climbing at. You know, having a little bit of levity, a little bit of a wink to all that we're trying hard, but also seeing failure as this opportunity to learn and to grow and to get better and that nobody's putting this pressure on ourselves but ourselves. So I really love that. I think it's worth listening to the tactic and mental game chapters again and again from this one especially. As Jonathan said, there's the beginning and the end and the struggle is what happens in between. Let's go. Well, that clips the anchors on another episode here at the Struggle Climbing Show. Big, big love for all of you patrons out there. Thank you so much for supporting me as I grind away here in the podcast slash utility closet to bring you what I hope you find to be high quality interviews that are going to help you level up your training and your performance and maybe just maybe brighten your commute or your warm up or your day a little bit from what you're hearing here. I'm trying hard and I'm gonna keep trying hard for you guys. I've got some amazing stuff coming your way. So if you are not a patron, now would be an awesome time to check it out. For about the price of a fancy cup of coffee or a cheap beer each month, you can help me to make more inspiring episodes like the one you just heard, plus the upcoming follow-up chat with Jonathan about Flex Luther. And you're also gonna get exclusive access to awesome things like pro clinics, early and ad-free episodes, and some super cool swag including free stickers and the limited edition travel mug slash can koozie that is only available to the guests of the show and patrons who support it. So check it all out if you can, if you have the means, I really appreciate it. Swing by patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show. Thank you. I love you. Hey, did you know that the struggle's carbon neutral in partnership with the Honnold Foundation? Guys, they're just doing awesome work to bring clean energy to communities around the world, including 40 indigenous families in the Brazilian Amazon, amongst many, many other super cool and somewhat like top secret projects that they just can share a little bit of information about every once in a while. Yeah, swing over to honoldfoundation.org to learn more to take action and to support with a tax deductible donation. They're doing really rad stuff and I am so proud to be supporting them. And lastly, The Struggle is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. The struggle makes us stronger. Let's climb hard and do good things in the world.